Uh, in the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, this is Rob in the Bunker Studio. Uh, super producer Carl is uh, roving the Digitosphere at a secure remote location. Uh, we have an extra special episode for you all today. Uh, not only is it an installment of the Delaware Justice Team Series, our collaboration with the Delaware Call and the ACLU of Delaware, our guests today are legitimate giants uh, in the fight for civil liberties. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the famous Supreme Court case from 1969, Tinker versus Des Moines Independent School District. In December 1965, a small group of students wore black armbands to class to protest the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. A group including Mary Beth Tinker at the Warren G. Harding Middle School were threatened with suspension if they continued this display. The fallout from this action went all the way to the nation's highest court. The Supreme Court ruled that banning this type of protest was a violation of the students' civil rights. This landmark decision established a tinker test for simple, similar cases ever since. And uh, we are humbled and excited to welcome Mary Beth Tinker to Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hi, Mary Beth. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much. I'm a fan of the podcast. I've been inter interested in all the great issues you're bringing up, immigration, voting rights, uh, so many important issues. So thanks for including me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to take the time and, I, and thank you for that compliment. It means a lot to me. Thanks. Um, and also joining us is another civil rights icon. Uh, Susan Burke has represented the interests of the victims of Blackwater private mercenaries in Missouri Square massacre, the victims of torture at Abu Ghraib. Her work to hold the U.S. military accountable for a pattern of gross sexual misconduct was made into a documentary film called The Invisible War. Uh, Susan was recently named the legal director for the ACLU of Delaware, and uh, we are very pleased to welcome uh, Susan Burke to the show and to the state. Hello, Susan. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here in Delaware and appreciate being asked to be on the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate um, you taking the time as well. And I'm, I'm just, you know, just so stoked to, to speak to both of you. Um, I want to start a little bit with Mary Beth's story, just for some background. Um, obviously, uh, you probably have told the story in some way so many times in your life. But um, in 1965, you were 13 years old uh, and you became a free speech pioneer. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the experience and um, your motivation to take up the cause in the first place. And what were your feelings as a young person and as, as a teenager as that small action that you helped organize was being escalated through um, the court and, and finally adjudicated at the Supreme Court? What was that experience just like um, for you personally? I had a lot of feelings during that time, like so many young people today. And it was mighty times, as a student said to me recently, and it's mighty times right now, too. So it really the rights of young people rest on the actions and grow out of the actions of African-American students, largely in the 50s and 60s. And in 1963, for example, the Birmingham Children's Crusade was really it, Martin Luther King said it was the turning point in the civil rights movement when almost 2,000 children in Birmingham were arrested for speaking up against racism. He was in jail there writing his famous letter from Birmingham jail. And the students then when, uh, you know, we, I was 11 years old at that time, but then the Ku Klux Klan, the white supremacists bombed their headquarters on September 15th, 1963. And someone came by our picnic where we were living in Des Moines, Iowa and told us what had happened to the brave kids. And a call went out all over the country by James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin, who was a leader in civil rights movement to wear black armbands and to have memorial services all over the country to mourn for the little girls who had been murdered in Birmingham, Alabama, four little girls, uh, Cynthia, Addie Mae, Carol, and Denise. And so that's what we did that year. And uh, it was the first, my first experience was wearing black armbands to express feelings. And that's what this case is all about. The rights of young people to express their feelings about the issues that affect their lives and to have an effect have an impact to take action about those things. So then 1964 was also an amazing year for young people. And that year was Freedom Summer in Mississippi when three young people were murdered again by white supremacists, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Mickey Schwerner for helping to register African-American voters. 
And so some high, and that was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's campaign, Freedom Summer. So some high school students in Mississippi that year, again, black high school students, spoke up and protested the murders by wearing buttons to school that said, one man, one vote, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they were told they couldn't do that. So a lawsuit started working its way through the courts that year, 1964, and they eventually won at the appeals court in Mississippi. And the court said that they should have been allowed to express their feelings about that. Why? Because they had not substantially disrupted school. Well, that's still the standard in public schools today for student free speech. But I didn't know about that case and I didn't know that it was going to affect my life and the lives of students all over the country. But that year, 1964, when my parents found out what had happened there to the brave young people, they went to Mississippi. My parents were very involved with the Methodist church. My dad was a Methodist preacher and we became also involved with the Quakers. So their, their actions grew out of their commitment to their faith the ideals of love and understanding and compassion. And so they said, we can't just preach about these things in church and talk about them. We have to go in and stand with these people. And so that's what they did that summer. And they came home on my 12th birthday that fall. And so the same day that the bodies though, were discovered of Cheney, Schwerner and Goodman, August 4th, 1964 off the coast of Vietnam, a US Navy ship claimed it was attacked, the USS Maddox. And it turns out it was not attacked. And, but it didn't stop the US Congress from then voting almost unanimously to escalate the war in Vietnam, which was already going on, but under the radar really of the American public. And so with the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution then that that uh, summer, August of 1964. Then by 1965, now what us kids were seeing on the news was war, war, war. I mean, there were a lot of racial justice issues still very much in the news, but now the Vietnam War was escalating and thousands more troops were, were going to Vietnam. And, and so by Christmas time, us kids were, were sad and depressed again about a world where you send Christmas cards that say peace on earth, but what happens in reality? War, war, war. And so we heard the idea to wear black armbands again, but this time to mourn for the dead in Vietnam, not for the Birmingham girls this time. And so I thought it was a good idea. I was scared to death. That was my main feeling. I was so shy and scared and I didn't like to be out in front, especially when we heard the principals made a rule against wearing black armbands. And so that was my feelings. And my dad didn't think we should do it. He was, you know, he believed in following the rules in a lot of ways, but see, kids are so persuasive. So we said, dad, look how you taught us to follow our conscience and to speak up for our conscience. And look what you've done. You even went to Mississippi to stand with those people when, when Cheney, Schwerner and Goodman were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. So, we got him to come over to our side. Some people got so mad about that, but one group was really kind and called us and contacted us and said, we will stand by you. And that was the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, which as it turns out, goes to the Supreme Court more than any organization in the United States. So they, they offered to help. Yeah, that's, that, that's uh, amazing. I, I was wondering uh, what your parents' background was because obviously being young people, they probably had a, a big influence on you. And I'm also, I'm fascinated with um, the religious background of, of people and how that motivated them because, you know, I've said before, uh, I'm an atheist, I was raised Catholic, um, but more and more I'm coming to understand that while I don't adhere to any sort of religious dogma as one might think of it, there really needs to be a, a spirit when you're, when you're trying to do something right that's maybe breaking the rules, as you say. Um, you need to understand why you're doing it, and there has to be some motivation that's bigger than yourself, because if it was just about yourself, you, would, you probably wouldn't do it. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I was very interested in that. Thanks, thanks for sharing that story. Uh, Susan, can you talk about um, some of your famous cases briefly and give us like some highlights? Because that's um, uh, pretty incredible to take on um, the, the, the people that you've taken on, the powerful, um, the, the secret, um, the violent. Um, and, and what's it like to have your work uh, memorialized in acclaimed films? <laughs> well, I think uh, I'll, I'll talk a bit about the Abu Ghraib work. It's very near and dear to my heart. And so, you know, what happened was um, at the time I was in private practice, I did kind of pro bono work on the side for civil liberties, but it wasn't the main thrust of my practice. But after 9-11, um, after about a year later, it, it, I was home visiting my folks in, in reading the Washington Post. And I read a story about a, Bush, a high level Bush administration official saying, if we're not violating people's human rights, we're not doing our jobs. And I was just appalled. I had always worked with Amnesty International advocating for free speech and advocating for the rights of folks abroad. But here we were, you know, our country beginning to ignore human rights again. I mean, we have in the past, but here we were doing it again and very visibly bragging about that. So I began to work with people I knew at Amnesty to kind of think through, was there any way to mount a legal challenge? And through that networking, I connected with just a wonderful man who unfortunately is now dead, uh, Michael Ratner, uh, who was the head of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And Michael and I were just kindred spirits and we got together and we just brainstormed, well, you know, can we use the courts? Can we use the legal system in any way to try to halt this terrible effort um, to torture people? And we began to kick around ideas. For example, all we really knew at the time was that they were building a prison in Guantanamo. Nothing was yet known about what was happening there. But we thought, well, maybe we can try to enjoin the building of the prison. And so we were in dialogue when we got connected with an Egyptian-American lawyer who lived out in the Detroit area, a gentleman named Sharif Akil. And Sharif had been uh, practicing law in, in that community. And he had had uh, a, a man come to him, an Iraqi by birth, who was a Swedish national, and Mr. Salah. And what Mr. Salah told him was just a horrifying story. He had been an anti-Saddam activist, and he had been under Saddam. He had been thrown in prison and tortured by Saddam and his henchmen. And after he was released, he and his wife fled to Sweden. And there he became a Swedish citizen, and he had a, a, a nice life running a used car dealership, I believe it was. Then the, then the overthrow of Saddam by the Americans, over his wife's objections, he went back to Iraq. And just the, the, the tragedy that happened to so many Iraqis as a result of our occupation of that country, he was swept up in a, in a raid, thrown in prison, and he was severely tortured. He then was released without charge. And you know the military reports themselves acknowledge that they swept up thousands and thousands of people, and then they just released them without charges. There was no targeting. They were just indiscriminately sweeping up Iraqis and throwing them in these, these prisons. So Mr. Salah, having been badly tortured by the Americans, left and went back home to Sweden. He did not tell his wife about the torture because a lot of it was uh, of a sexual nature. It was, it was terrible. And he, um, using his Swedish passport, he traveled to the United States um, to visit some cousins. And he told a male cousin of his, who was like a brother, he for the first time recounted the full story of what had happened to him while he was thrown in prison and under the control of the Americans. So the, um, the cousin who lived in America said, well, you really need to see an American lawyer. So they walked in and they told the story to Mr. Sharif Akil. And Sharif, uh, just a wonderful man, a wonderful human being, he realized, okay, this is something where he needed help. So he reached out. And so Michael and Sharif and I formed a virtual legal team 
and we began to put together um, a lawsuit based on what had happened to Mr. Salah. It, as we were doing that, the photos from Abu Ghraib broke. They were released, the Taguba report was released, and we quickly had a, a whole uh, body of compelling evidence showing that American military, as well as private companies, uh, co defense contractors, were involved in the routine and systemic torture of these Iraqis that were held at Abu Ghraib prison. And so we ended up um, having an office in Iraq and we would, um, we would interview the victims in Amman, Jordan and Istanbul, Turkey. We would, we would bring them over the border. We would meet with them there. We would interview them and we ended up bringing a series of lawsuits. Uh, we sued the defense contractors because, as your listeners may know, um, the United States government has sovereign immunity for all actions that it takes in foreign countries. So we really could not sue directly uh, the military, but we sued the contractors that worked hand in glove with the military, and we were um, we were we had mixed results. We were able to obtain a wonderful settlement for uh, half the people, but the first group that had come forward, we went, we went through the process and we lost at the Court of Appeals in the DC Circuit uh, with a decision on a panel that had Brett Kavanaugh and Silberman, who was a friend of Cheney's, writing a decision that essentially allows the United States to torture human beings, even though it is illegal by under the terms of the law. But we had a beautiful dissent written by none other than Merrick Garland. So we, um, we sought certiorari on that case, but uh, we did not obtain it. The Obama administration actually, in one of their first acts uh, taking office, they they opposed granting cert. And so that decision stood. So the first group of, of brave torture victims that came forward did not receive any justice. Um, the, we didn't give up. And the later groups, we were able to negotiate a settlement and obtain you know, compensation for them. So it was very, um, you know, it really taught me uh, kind of the good and the bad, the limits of our judicial system, and yet, you know, the benefits. So, um, as you can imagine, it's hard enough for Americans to understand the complexities of our system. Imagine trying to explain through translators to groups of Iraqis why some received money and some did not. This is very painful, very painful. Um, but um, certainly as we continue to see, you know, unchecked American aggression with the drone strikes and the rest, I mean, I think the American public needs to, uh, you know, understand their responsibility and not allow this kind of indiscrim indiscriminate killing of, of innocent civilians. It's very sad to me that it's still continuing. Yeah, I, um, I remember, and you, you sort of alluded to it, uh, when some of the reports came out with the, the evidence, and, and of course the, the great Barack Obama didn't, uh, didn't really shine himself in, in, uh, in, in great esteem coming out and just saying, you know, we tortured some folks and sort of shrug. Um, I remember how um, how sick I felt in my stomach, so I can only imagine how it felt uh, as someone who did that work and was really trying to get some sort of accountability and, and recompense. Um, yeah, I, I, that I, that certainly resonates with me. Um, I want to put a pin in that because later on I, I have um, some some journalism that was done here locally uh, a year or two ago stemming from. Uh, the prison upri uprising that we had here, and I think I actually think there there's some parallels with the Abu Ghraib case, and I, I, I think I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it when we get through some of the other um, some of the other points I want to hit. Um, Mary Beth, I know that you're very focused and very keen on student rights and student activism. Um, as I said, I'm I'm so happy that um, there's a lot of student activity around. Um, just general uh, criminal justice reform and police reform in general, but also students in the U.S. and around the world leading, I think, leading the, the, the advocacy around uh, climate change, around warming, around environmental issues, too. Um, and I know you're doing a lot of work around just 
making sure that students and young people are, are able to express themselves this way. Can you talk about some of the issues that you're working on and some of your other work just to ensure that young people and students are able to, to basically step up the way you did and, and continue that tradition? Yes, and I want to say how honored I am to be here with Susan and how much she is representing so many of us in these, these efforts that her you know, and others have been involved with. And we have been following this, you know, so many of us. And I just think it's, it's really all related because as she said, it has to do with paying attention and then taking some action and not just, you know, letting the, the steering wheel of democracy be taken by others, but each of us are, are responsible for paying attention and speaking up and standing up about these things. And that has to do with, you know, getting involved, civically involved. And that can start at a very young age. I mean, I've talked to kids who are speaking up about so many, even at second grade, third grade. I talked to first graders who are at the student council saying, we need more sand in our sandbox. And I mean, I don't care what they're speaking up about. I just want them to practice and get the feeling that they can have a voice over, over their lives. But I, I talked to so many uh, you know, kids who are speaking up, as you said, about the climate, um, students in, in uh, Baltimore who stopped a toxic waste incinerate, and, and um, you know, students who are speaking up about uh, no police in the schools in DC. Students testified about that where I live. DC is also a place where students almost succeeded in lowering the voting age to age 16. They were short one vote by the DC council. There are campaigns like that going around in the country. And there are three towns in, in uh, the country where students can vote at age 16. But there are just so many issues. And I'm so glad that students in Delaware are speaking up about reassessment and getting more funds for low-income students and for students with disability, English language learners, and some of the victories that you've had in Delaware. I know that youth were, were involved in those as well. So yes, it's very heartening, whether it has to do with you know gender justice, racial justice, of course, is at the heart of so much of, of the work right now, rightly so, Native American justice. Um, this is um, Indigenous Peoples Day. Technically, I think it was yesterday, but um, that's a very great victory. And, and that has all come with youth speaking up and standing up, but they also need allies. They need adult allies to encourage them. So I'm very you know, heartened to uh, see so many adults that are also encouraging young people. Yeah, you mentioned too. Um, it, it came up last year. Of course, we have a uh, a euphemism for them: uh, school resource officers. They're armed cops in schools, uh, and there was a petition. Of course, it didn't. Uh, it, it wasn't very popular, but at least it got a fair hearing. Uh, I spoke at my school district uh, about it because I don't think armed officers belong there. Um, of course, it didn't go anywhere. But that's something that that's another thing uh, in this state that. You know, hopefully, at least the, this conversation has been started because you know it's not going to happen overnight. But that's another one that there's been a lot of, a lot of advocacy and and discussion around uh, doing something about that because it's exactly not, you know, it's not appropriate. And youth, I know. Well, youth should have a say about what their schools are like, what the climate is in the school, and in every you know aspect of their schooling, I do believe that they should have a say. There are something like 13,000 school boards in the United States, and there are only two or three where there is a voting member on the school board that is an actual student. So we have a lot of work to do for students to have agency and to have a say about what happens in their schools. But that is certainly one thing that they are speaking up about, and I'm glad that they are. Um, Susan, I wanted to talk about a, a local, couple local issues. Um, later this week on Friday, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Lakeisha Nix, uh, who's the sister of Lamont Moses, and with uh, Keandra Ray, who's the sister of Bam McDowell. Um, both have been uh, murdered by murdered in the city by police, different police agencies. Uh, they've been incredibly active in organizing and uh, street protests for accountability and significant police reform. Um, as you know, we have a 
We have a cop bill of rights here, which keeps a lot of the uh, information secret, uh, so it's not actionable in court. Um, some of these organizers are now getting heat for protesting in particular places uh, with particular people. Uh, I know the Chancery Court uh, threw out a, a request to get them to stop outside a home in North Wilmington, but I, I think that, that the push to control the t that type of street protest is going to continue, and we're going to talk about that on Friday. Um, is the ACLU prepared to... Uh, to step in and ensure that these groups and and these activists um, have their full rights in the street to be able to make these calls and 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 how can you speak about um, this this situation in particular? But then you know the larger uh, issue of just street protests happening a lot more in the last two, three years? Certainly, uh, yes, the ACLU Delaware did step in. Uh, you may be aware the attorney general of the state actually sued Keandra and another woman, Chris Kelly, in an effort to stop them from protesting. And so uh, we ended up representing them and we were able to work out a resolution in which they are allowed to continue to protest. Um, the resolution was in accord with the Supreme Court case law that also makes sure that people have some level of uh, comfort in their homes so that the speech doesn't turn coercive. Um, but certainly there should be no ban and the settlement provided that there is no ban on protesting in residential areas and protesting outside the residences of officials. And this really goes, I love the wonderful phrase that Mary Beth used about the steering wheel of democracy. This really goes to our fundamental rights. We, we cannot and should not allow government officials to be the only one that are steering our democracy because they often steer it in the wrong direction. And without the type of public protesting that Keandra has been active on, um, the, the officials just will not hear. For example, they began to try to get their point across by protesting outside the office buildings, but you know the officials just snuck out the back door. I mean, they were you know willfully closing their ears to these important messages about the need for police reform, the need to get rid of Leobor, the terrible law that prevents the discipline, the appropriate discipline of police officers who engage in criminal conduct. So the ACLU stands proudly and firmly with any protesters who uh, run into any sort of trouble. I mean, we are committed to making sure that, that there is free speech in Delaware. And you know, it's important to note that uh, passivity is a problem. I mean, free speech is not the natural order of the world. And if we as Americans aren't vigorous and disciplined about protecting speech, it will disappear um, to the detriment of us all. So, you know, we encourage people to protest, we encourage people to have their voices heard, and we encourage them to call us if they get into any problem, if they run into any problems. Yes, it's what I tell students that free speech, your First Amendment rights, all of it, it's, it's like your muscles. If you don't use them, you could lose them. And I'm a nurse. And so I've found that it's actually really good for students' health to speak up and express themselves and to take action about all of the issues that, that are affecting their lives and so many that need to be changed. And I think, Mary Beth, the emphasis on children is so appropriate because I think that just as free speech is necessary, to get into a comfort level of challenging authority. If you begin to do that as a young person, appropriately and effectively, then you have the courage as an adult. And I think unfortunately, we have far too many adults that simply get too nervous. They may know that people in authority are doing the wrong thing, but they're too timid to challenge it. So I, I believe that you know, that that also is a muscle that needs to be exercised repeatedly. It's so true. And I found that history looks back favorably on people who do speak up and who do make waves for, for changes. The Birmingham children, they were attacked at the time, but now there are monuments to them. There's a whole park dedicated to them. The Abu Ghraib situation, the Guantanamo, people who spoke up against torture, people you know, the, are, who are still doing that today, 
I believe in the future will will be looked on very favorably and admirably by history. And certainly having lived through it, you know, there there it can be frightening, right? I mean, I remember when we first filed the lawsuits, I got all sorts of, you know, threats and nasty mail. But, you know, the more you do it, the more you realize, okay, this has to be done. And the more people that do it, the better it gets, the better for all of us. I know I've found it's a good way of life. You have meaning in life. You meet very interesting people like I'm meeting both of you today. And as I tell the students, some days it's even fun. So I find it's a good way of life. Yes, there are some risks and some some difficult times, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came to sort of this kind of activism sort of later in life as an as an adult. And yeah, so I was experiencing that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you know, having to go and, you know, go on Capitol Hill and, and you know, confront politicians, uh, you know, get yourself in, in a little bit of legal trouble um, just to get yourself out there. And it is, it's very difficult. It's scary. It's nerve wracking. Uh, but I can say personally, and to echo um, sort of what Susan said, it's incredibly empowering. It feels, uh, as Mary Beth said, it actually feels good to go do it um, and again, it goes back to that thing where you do really feel like it's the right thing to do for everybody. And so, yeah, people are not going to understand it. They're going to they're going to have reactionary uh, responses. They're going to threaten. Uh, but that's just part of that's just part of it. And so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a um, it's an interesting it's an it's it's an interesting situation. That's why I'm so fascinated with um, students that are able to do it. Uh, you know, Mary Beth's story being a, a you know, a quintessential one. But yeah, it, because it, it once you do it, you realize how good it is. But it takes a lot to do. <laughs> it takes a lot to make the first step sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of well, scary sometimes. Yeah. And I think it, it's one of the consequences of people having the courage to speak out is that they then give comfort and encouragement to others. I, I recall when we were uh, working on the issue of rape in the military. Uh, a group of survivors convened in our offices. And the question to them was, well, did they want to proceed as, as Jane and John Doe's or did they want to proceed with their names? And, you know, I, I said that we would obviously be willing to do whatever they were comfortable with, but that I thought that uh, people being willing to put their names on their stories, there's nothing that they should be ashamed of. They weren't the criminals. And that if, if they wanted to do that, you know, that I thought that that would be very impactful. And it was fascinating to see the discussion and how the courage and the strength of numbers led them to decide as a group to go forward in that way. And this was well before the, the Me Too movement had started. And I just admired their courage for going on record in federal court about what had happened to them in the military. And, uh, and so I think that any single person who takes that step, who has the courage to speak out, it has a ripple effect and it ends up encouraging lots of others to do the same. Well, those people who have done that in the military are certainly having a ripple effect and they're certainly changing history and they're certainly changing the way that people are treated more justly and respectfully. So that's it really pays off, too. Well, I want to I want to move into this um, sort of situation um, that has come up after the Vaughn prison uprising of 2017. Um, so our largest prison uh, in, in Delaware uh, had an uprising in 2017. Uh, one of the corrections officers was killed. Uh, a few others were taken hostage. Subsequently, a small group of organizers uh, were charged. Some went to trial. I believe there was two trials. There was really uh, no convictions for others other than uh, the man who took most of the responsibility. But subsequently, stories have come out, and a lot of this has been done uh, from reporting of Xerxes Wilson, my friend Lex, uh, in the Delaware and uh, Wilmington News Journal, um, that starting with the raid of the building uh, to, to combat the, the uprising, uh, there was no video taken, no body cameras, all the cameras in the building were turned off. 
um, the the state officials and the, the, the paramilitary went in with their faces covered, with their names covered, uh, and did what you would expect them to do in that situation and just wreak havoc. Um, violence, kicking, hitting, you know, terrible uh, threats, intimidation. But that continued past the breakup of the uprising. And actually lawsuits have been filed um, about this. As of yet, they haven't really gone anywhere because, again, they're very general. Um, you can't prove really who did what or who's, uh, in sh you know, who would be responsible legally um, for some of this. Uh, but I've read a couple of the uh, news articles that Lex wrote, and it's, it's, I have to say, it strikes me as very uh, similar to Abu Ghraib. Uh, there was a, quote, syst a systematic and intentional institution of a regiment of intimidation, torture, and abuse against plaintiffs and others. Uh, they were intimidated with dogs, racial slurs, threat to implement the death penalty with the withholding of medical and hygiene rights. Um, uh, they were the, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the claimants, Rodriguez, uh, had uh, his ability to speak with his attorney interfered with, uh, which caused uh, psychological damage because then he was put in solitary confinement. Um, there are stories about uh, physical assaults, uh, rape and sodomy with implements, flashlights, stick. Um, it's, 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 it, it, it gets pretty, pretty heinous and horrible. Um, Susan, are you familiar with the background of this and, and that these lawsuits are pending? And how much are you familiar? And is, is this the kind of, is this the kind of thing that the ACLU, again, Obviously, you're, 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 you're coming in and putting a lot on your plate, but you're not a, um, <laughs> you're very used to having a lot on your plate and fighting everyone. So I wonder um, if this is something else that, um, that you've looked into, and is there a way to get, um, at least shine some light on what's happening? Because I can tell you that um, the stories from the prisons in Delaware are um, bone chilling. And so, yeah, I wonder what your take on it is. I have to say that I am very, very concerned about the state of Delaware prisons. It's one of the first things that I began to look into when I took this job, because prisons, uh, prisons tend to devolve into violence unless there is proper supervision of guards. And this has been proven again and again. There was a famous experiment in Stanford, out of Stanford in California, where they put uh, students in charge of other students and it quickly devolved into violence. Um, Professor Milgram, the same thing. There's, so there is, there is uh, study after study that proves beyond dispute that you cannot simply place one group of human beings with absolute authority over another group of human beings. And yet here in Delaware, it appears that that is what's happening. So we are, are, we are investigating the prisons in this state and likely will be bringing class actions involving trying to stop the systemic wrongdoing. Um, we've heard of the beatings, we've heard of the raids, we've heard of the rapes, and there is just no way that that, that can be tolerated. So it's definitely top of our list. And we, we hear a lot from persons who are incarcerated. And we encourage anyone who hears this podcast, who knows about wrongdoing in prisons to reach out to me, uh, either by email or by telephone. My cell is 202-445-1409. And the more people that come forward, uh, the better. Um, and we definitely will be working hard to change the state of affairs. It's shocking. And I have to say, uh, not having lived in Delaware before, I had a bit of a naive assumption that Delaware would be in a better state than it is. Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of people have that assumption because unlike other places that um, sort of make the news about the most sort of heinous acts towards uh, incarcerated people, uh, is a lot of private sort of private prisons, um, you know, they, 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 they contract the uh, basically everything out. Well, here it is run by the state. Uh, I mean, there's contracts, obviously, for food and other things and, and, and probably the commissary and things, but the guards and the, the, the actual implementation of, of the lockup is the state. Um, so we don't have that problem 
but it's not it doesn't hasn't hasn't changed anything and you know we've covered uh you know lex has been in we've covered stories about um the the uprising and its aftermath um and i've just continued to say i mean you, to imagine the desperate situation to take to 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 do violence in that situation where you know there's nothing really good is going to come of it uh you know it's not like you're going to escape Nothing, you know, there's no real good outcome. The ramifications are going to be bad. And to know all of that and do it anyway is really indicative of the desperation and the, and the violence and the inhumanity that these people are, are being, how they're being treated in these prisons. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's something that I've uh, been, been outspoken about. And this isn't even part of the COVID. I mean, the COVID has created a whole nother problem for the prisons because I remember when COVID first started and I spoke to a few elected officials about like, hey, let's let some people out. Let's get them masks. Let's, you know, this first couple months of COVID. And there was just an attitude like, yeah, no one wants to do that. Nobody cares about these people. Uh, so they were very slow. They were very slow to enact any COVID protocols. Many, many were sick. I went to Georgetown with a group to protest outside the Sussex County Correctional uh, Facility in Georgetown uh, on the COVID issue specifically. But yeah, there's an attitude, a really sort of flippant like attitude that the somehow that people incarcerated are not human beings that we should be treating with dignity and respect. And I, uh, I, I just try to be very outspoken about that. I'm so glad that you are, Rob. And it's, it's really important because a lot of people don't have a chance to have a voice about those things. And you do, and you're using it and a lot of these issues start in the juvenile facilities as well, in the youth detention facilities. And so those need monitoring and the youth should have a voice there and, and have some say about what goes on there as well. Yeah, we have a youth facility uh, right outside of Wilmington, uh, Ferris. Um, and they've had many, many problems there. Um, you know, they try to have, you know, sort of high school type activities, uh, but there's there's always sort of violence there and you know there are documented cases of you know similar violence at that facility and that's uh, i think that that's for high school age boys i think that that's uh, who are who are there so yeah it's it's rampant uh, you know across the state and unfortunately i think it's rampant across the country uh that you know this is just how we treat our prison population you know we just pile people up and forget about it and, yeah, and so uh, many of those are, are low-income people, Black people, Latinx, Native American. And it's the measure of a society, how the young people are treated and how young people are able to thrive. So a society that helps its young people and where kids thrive, it's usually pretty good for other ages of people as well. And it's not a, it's, it's an indictment of us that we're not treating young people better in so many areas yeah well i want to talk about one sort of fun issue and we'll see if we can get everybody on some controversial thing to say something controversial let's see uh so this is a this is a, a generally a free speech sort of episode and topic so I, I i want to get your opinion about this i live uh about three blocks from a man who used to uh used to run a a, a mac repair shop See where I'm going? I don't know. You probably know where I'm going with this. Uh, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop guy, if you're familiar with that guy um, and you've seen him on the news, the, the, the guy who ran, ran the store uh, who, that Hunter Biden brought his laptop into and the guy sort of got information off of it and fed it to um, different news organizations. Uh, you know, he's not, uh, I know, like I said, the guy lives in my neighborhood. I sort of know who he is. Uh, he's not necessarily all together. Um, but my question about it is the New York Post uh, ran a story of all of the uh, evidence that they had. Um, and it seemed pretty clear that, you know, this was Hunter Biden's laptop. Nobody really um, nobody really denied it. Um, all of the evidence based on the emails and the things there seemed that it was true. Um, I don't really care about, you know, a politician's son who's having you know addiction problems and 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 trying to you know get a no you know no uh no work you know contract with you know some company somewhere else i know this this goes on all the time i'm not happy about it but i'm not necessarily concerned about it 
What I was concerned about is when the Post uh, wrote the article, and then it was it was basically banned from all social media platforms. You couldn't send a link like over Facebook, or you couldn't send a link via Twitter. It was like locked. Like so, the mechanisms by which people have to share news stories were not available for this particular story, and I thought it was kind of like a scandal. And not because I thought that Hunter Biden's, not that I, I couldn't care less. Like, I just assumed it was all true to begin with. Like, I didn't think it, I didn't think it really, you know, it wasn't going to change any of my political views uh, or anything like that or, or change what I thought of the election or Joe Biden or anything like that. But I, I, I was actually pretty concerned with the fact that we couldn't share a news story and, 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 and we were shut out of that just on, on free speech uh, grounds, and I wonder what you guys think about that. If you're familiar with that uh, that detail of the story, and what you think about um, that that decision, I am not. I had had not followed that particular decision, but I think the issue is a fascinating legal one because we have essentially privatized the public square, right? And so, in years past, it was you know, okay, what's a public forum and the streets and the sidewalks and the, the town square and the like. And now in today's world, that's controlled by Facebook. And so what does that mean? I mean, obviously, the First Amendment really uh, involves restrictions by the government, not by a private company. And yet, as we listen to the testimony from the Facebook whistleblower and we learn how you know how Facebook is basically selling our attention. I personally don't have a Facebook, um, so I'm uh, I'm speaking a bit uh, removed. Nor do I. Of- Nor do I. <laughs> um, but I think it it raises a very significant issue. What is the appropriate legal regime when a good chunk of the of the public discourse goes over this private corporate means of communication? So I'm interested to see, I think that it's an area that's ripe for legislation, frankly, so that we can grapple with that tension between private corporate actor and public speech. I, uh, just before we get Mary Beth's uh, ideas, I agree with that. Like, yeah, we have to do something. We can't allow private entities to be our means of sharing information. So we have to come up with some way where it isn't. So yeah, that's, I mean, that the reason that this happened is because the way we disseminate information now is completely in private hands. So there's like, we've put ourselves in a situation where now we can't, now we get ourselves into a situation where they can turn the switch off. So that's, I, I, I agree with, that's that's where I'm at with it too, yeah. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that specific situation, but I have been very concerned recently about the internal research by Facebook showing that teenage girls are affected adversely by Instagram. And I do think that uh, which apparently that information and that research was censored by Facebook. We didn't get to hear about it until a whistleblower, um, you know, put that out there. And I admire her very much for her courage. Uh, But I I do think that uh, Facebook has to be held accountable for the some of the harmful effects that some of their work is is uh, having on on the public and on young people and teenagers, and you can't. I don't think a for-profit company should just be able to go out and do anything they feel like. And what their income, their their profit is the number one concern. That happens uh, way too often in our society, and I do think there should be some, you know, restrictions on that by the public. Yeah, I I, I uh, often use. Uh a little shorthand and like, you know, when they, when, when the spreadsheet comes out to decide whether they're going to do something uh, and they start plugging numbers into cells and, and doing calculations, there's no cell that ma- that, 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 uh, that values like the impact to like human life. That never yeah, comes. And then what not, about the, it's, not, it's not in the calculation. I know. And, and the planet and yeah. earth and um, the well-being of, of the public needs to be taken into account a whole lot more and that comes out in policies and that's why you know for all of us who care about these things you just about have to be involved in policy making paying attention as we were talking about earlier and and taking action 
to speak up for the policies that we want because history will be made even if we do nothing, but it may not be the history we want. So we have to speak up and stand up. And as we were saying earlier, all of us, it's, it's a good way of life. Well, I want to thank you both. Um, we have Susan's uh, phone number now. So if anything, if you see anything that we can make sure that we, we, we pass it along, because uh, I'm just incredibly excited that, um, that someone with, um, with your background and um, your motivation and, uh, and everything are, are here to, uh, to join the fight with us. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very, very excited uh, about the potential of, 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 of working with you and the ACLU going forward uh, on a lot of this stuff. So, um, Susan, uh, uh, thank you very much. And, and again, welcome to, uh, welcome to Delaware. Rob, thank you. Look forward to working with you on all these important issues. Yeah, and, and Mary Beth, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time um, uh, to be with us. Uh, you've, uh, you've, you've led an inspirational life, and I know that there's, there's more to come. I know you're still out there grinding uh, every day. Um, are, you, are you working on anything specific now you want to you turn people Thanks. on to? Thanks, Rob. You've both inspired me. Uh, I'm mostly working on child health issues, teen health issues, and how young people can speak up and have a stand, uh, whether it has to do with urban agriculture, reducing violence in their lives. And um, all of these are, are health issues. And I want to say, too, by the way, if anyone would like to write to me, it's tinkertour at gmail. And I'll send you coloring books of true stories of kids who use their First Amendment rights to speak up. And so write to me and I'll write you back. Nice. Well, uh, Susan, uh, Mary Beth, thank you so much. Uh, you know where to reach us. Uh, Patreon.com slash The Highlands Bunker. We're on Twitter at Highlands Bunker. Uh, we also have links, obviously, as we always do, to the ACLU of Delaware. We will link to Mary Beth's work. And... Um, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation with two real-life heroes of the civil rights movement. Unbelievable. Once again, thanks a lot. Thanks, Left, Bye. left is best. <laughs> <laughs>